Our scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 30 through 31, from 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3, and Titus, chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. I'll be reading from the NIV. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles or look to the screens. Then will appear a sign of the Son of Man in heaven, and then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. From the book of Thessalonians. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. From the book of Titus. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. The word of the Lord. Can't think of a greater contrast to the scriptures that were read with that song. Now, the youngsters among us, I probably have chosen a song that isn't necessarily on your radar, but this is actually the 50th anniversary next month of the song Imagine by John Lennon. It was soon after the breakup of the Beatles. This was really his first album. It was his greatest solo song. And 15 years ago, I was watching the ball drop in Times Square on New Year's Eve, and they played the song. And I thought, well, interesting that they would choose Imagine, but why not? Who can't rally around the idea that there's no heaven, that there's no hell, that there's no religion, there are no borders to countries, there's nothing to kill or die for, there's no possessions. This utopian ideal resonates well when you're trying to consider how to bring the people of the world together. But they didn't stop there in terms of the programming of the ball drop in Times Square. For the last 15 years, younger artists have gotten uh, before the microphone and sung these lyrics. So it's become the anthem of the new year for our country. It'll happen this week. If you stay up late enough to watch that, which I know most of us are already in bed. But I bring that song not obviously because I endorse it, but because I believe Lenin was not original 
in this. He just popularized the whole idea through the idea of imagine. Really, what he was talking about could find its roots in the West in what's called the Enlightenment. The period in the 17 and 1800s when science and mathematics and philosophy and reason were growing by leaps and bounds. And in Europe, there were overthrows of governments because suddenly the shackles of the way they had done things in Europe, now they were triumphing over the human spirit and our ability as humans to figure out this life. It impacted philosophy in a way that we call now humanistic philosophy. Again, highlighting reason, knowledge, and science. And I would submit to you that the ideology and the utopia of Imagine is the primary ideology in our world today, not just in the West. It has infiltrated our educational systems at all levels. It's infiltrated our governments. It's infiltrated society at large because those human ideals are something that resonates with all of us. Who does not want the end of war and conflict? Who doesn't want people getting along in love and harmony? Who doesn't want the poor and the oppressed and the disenfranchised to be cared for and to see equality? But as I've thought about this, because this song has been around since I was a teenager, the more I listen to it, the more I realize that that philosophy wants paradise. But they want heaven without God. They want everything that we strive for as followers of Jesus and are taught about in the scriptures in terms of what eternity will be like. But they say, no, thank you to that. And they say, let's just create it here on earth because as humans, we have that capability. And they obviously dismiss the idea of judgment, the idea of being separated from God. And yet Christians have been changed by our belief in eternity. It is that belief and a belief that God will judge justly in this world that is the motivation for us to do his kingdom work here on earth. Would you pray with me? Father, these are wonderful truths of our faith. They're truths that you've embedded in our hearts. There's something in us that just says, we know another world exists. We know eternity is real. And we know you've provided a way for it. So enlighten our minds today through your Holy Spirit and these scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. You know that at the beginning of this month, we said that Christianity is all about Advent. But I mentioned that you needed double vision. You need one eye looking backwards to the first Advent, and you need your other eye to look forward to the second Advent. And so today on this last day, last Sunday rather, of 2020, we're highlighting 
the second advent, the blessed hope, Paul called it to Titus. And the way I look at it is when we think about the second advent, we live our lives backwards. What I mean by that is when your place in eternity, when your understanding of the life that will go on forever in God's presence, when that is secure and that reality is real in your life, the rest of your life is lived backwards from that moment. That's one of the great joys of our faith. Because we have a blessed hope, it can transform what we do in the present. One of the things I love about the Bible is it is very aware of the utopian ideals of imagine in humanistic philosophy. The Apostle Paul and the early church faced it head on, and they recorded their responses in Scripture as they were trying to take this understanding of resurrection and eternity and heaven and now relay it to Greek and Roman philosophy. And so we have recorded Paul going into the public square, for example, in the book of Acts and debating on Mars Hill with the philosophers of his day who would have totally identified with Imagine. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul says, the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. To the Greeks and Romans, the resurrection was a fairy tale. They mocked Paul. They laughed in his face. They believed in multiplicity of gods, but to have one God who would die was beyond, it was foolishness. And the idea of these early Christians looking for a second return of Jesus, oh, that's just a panacea. That's just a wishful thinking. And Paul's response in 1 Corinthians 15, the go-to text for Easter, he said, for if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. I always say it this way, Paul was basically saying, what in the world are we doing here coming here Sunday after Sunday and involving ourselves in church life? We might as well form a bowling league or go dancing or do your favorite hobby. We are to be pitied among all people for believing this stuff when the culture around us is saying, you fools. And finally, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 15 to really say it like it is. And he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's the same philosophy as Ecclesiastes. A lot of people don't like Ecclesiastes. They think it's depressing and no hope. I found an affinity for it when I was in college because to me, it showed the shallowness that humanistic philosophy is a house of cards, and that's what Ecclesiastes teaches me. Put up 
the graphic, if you would, of Jesus' ascension and his exaltation to the right hand of God the Father, this place of authority that the early church continually dwelt upon and dreamed about. Because they understood the reality of their faith was Jesus' second advent was going to happen in their lifetime. In fact, the first couple centuries of Christians, they weren't thinking about established hierarchies of bishops and cardinals and buildings and some kind of structures of churches. They were like, pack your bags. We're leaving this place. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And they believed it firmly. That's why the New Testament documents say they fully expected the return of Jesus. It's a great way to live. They were living backwards because their eternal destiny was secure. And they knew that the destiny of this planet and everybody on it was secure because the resurrection had shown a triumph over evil, injustice, and ultimately death that they reveled in. And that was the message that they were sharing. And so Paul could say, For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. We put that on my dad's grave marker. And I want it on mine, because that short statement sums it up. It's a plumb line for us. And that understanding of eternity and living backwards was really true in the Western church up until the 1800s. If you read our hymns from that period and throughout church history, they generally told the full gospel story, and verse 4 was about what? It was about Jesus' return. You can tell a lot about a generation of Christians by their music. And about 30 years ago, I noticed that Christian hymnology and choruses in America were changing and they were speaking more about God help me because I'm broken and busted up and if you don't show up, I don't know what's going to happen. All good stuff, by the way. But we have very few songs in the last 30 years that draw us to a second advent. That's another sermon as to perhaps why we have been driven to those kind of immediate needs in our own life. I think the breakdown of the family and our own materialism has led us to love this more than we love heaven. So we have bucket lists for those in my age group. Jesus, don't come back. I got a few more things I want to get done here. They're going to be fun trips. I live as Christ and to die as Gabriel. first advent, Jesus came as a savior. The second advent, his promise is to destroy the satanic forces, the sin that dwells within human beings and has caused such havoc and pain. The promise is that Jesus will deliver his people into a forever kingdom, a brand new heaven in a brand new earth. And so in Titus, the passage that was read from chapter 2, Paul reiterates, it's the grace of God that appeared 
He's speaking of the first advent. The Greek word there is for appearance. It offered salvation to all people. And it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. He's living backwards from the reality of his salvation. Verse 13, while we wait, this is it. It's the only place in the scriptures where Paul or any writers refer to the second advent as blessed hope. But he puts these two together. It's the blessed hope. It's the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is what we base and found our faith on. For the believer, the blessed hope sums up his second coming. And the rest of the scriptures, and particularly the parables of Jesus, say, be watching and waiting and anticipating and longing for that day. Verse 14, Jesus gave himself to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. God's plan has always been to purify himself a people. The imagery from that verse speaks of what God was trying to do through his people Israel. That's why we have the entirety of our Old Testament seeing how God was working and tireless and faithful to try and develop a pure bride. And when the church comes along, Jesus says, I'm going to the Gentiles. We're blowing this thing wide open to the Jew and to the Gentile. But his plan has never changed. There's only one plan A, and there's no B for our Lord. He will continue to purify his church until he comes again. There is sobering news about the second advent. If Jesus' return is a blessed hope for those who follow him, it is a horrible thing for those who do not. Jesus himself introduced this idea, especially if you read the end of the Gospel of Matthew. But the text that was written, uh, read today from Matthew 24, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Jesus is using an Old Testament reference of Son of Man that the Jews would have understood. This was the predicted person who would not only come with salvation, but also with the sword of judgment. And then all the peoples of the earth will mourn when they see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call. Jesus is the one that introduced the idea of a trumpet sound at his coming. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of the heavens to the other. And then the Apostle Paul picks up this image in the First Thessalonians passage, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness, 
to purify for himself a people, there it is again, that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Now, brothers and sisters, about the times and dates, we don't need to write you. For you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. That's the sobering part of the second advent. Today, there's many people that I interact with who believe there's a third position that you can take about Jesus and about the second coming. Their third position is that they want to be neutral. This stuff is too hard for me intellectually to put together. I don't understand the Bible. There's the, the reasons go on and on and on. And so there's this idea that if you're neutral, if you're agnostic, nobody can know. This is all matters of faith. Every religion requires faith and so forth. I'm just going to be neutral. And I'm just going to continue to imagine the utopian world that I can imagine. If you read the Bible, it's not Christians that say this, but Jesus left no place for neutral. He said, if you build your life on sand, it'll wash away. Only if you build it on a rock will it be stable. He said, there's a wide road that leads to destruction, but there's a very narrow gate that leads to me. And through many, many different parables, I'll just choose one. The parable of the bridesmaids, there were five that were ready and had their lamps filled with oil, and there were five that ran out of oil. There were no neutral in any of the teachings of Jesus. And so if we don't have a longing for eternity, we essentially become functional humanists, putting our efforts into bringing a utopia to this world. But unlike the Marxist claim that religion is the opiate of the masses, the promise of Jesus' second coming actually has motivated Christians for kingdom work. My favorite quote about this is from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. He went after this idea as well. Lewis wrote, if you read history, you'll find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought the most of the next. It is, sincere Christ, it, it is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they've become so ineffective in this one. We work for God's kingdom in and through his church, his frail, broken, filled with sinners that are saved by grace that are just trying to figure it out. But that's his plan, to bring God's kingdom on earth. But it isn't for us to relax and make it happen here alone. It is so that we can show people a taste of what will be pure in eternity. 
And I think we become numb to the promise of what it means for us to live forever. We proclaim it on Easter, and then we go home and have a nice dinner. The older you get, the more that truth means. When you're young, you got all kinds of things that you want to get done before Jesus comes back, even if you're a Christian. Jesus, hold off. I'd love to get married, have kids, live long enough to have grandkids. Look at my bucket list. Brothers and sisters, the promise for us is eternal life. gives me great hope when I go to retirement communities and I see people who have dementia. I see people who don't know that Christmas happened last week. But I take hope because that's not the end. We wonder why they're still around they wonder at themselves, but the truth of the matter is, in God's timing, he has paradise waiting for them. One of the things we've talked about on staff is that we don't know how far our live stream has reached. We've trusted that it's going into more homes than just people who would identify with Evergreen and so if that's true, I want to talk for a moment to you. Maybe you found Evergreen online, and for some reason you've continued to listen and tune in on Sundays or watched it on later. But I just want to encourage you today, if anything is resonating in your heart, and you don't really fully understand, but you have questions about what this would mean for you to devote your life to Christ, then I invite you to do that this week. Maybe you know a Christian person you can go to and talk to face-to-face. -face. Maybe you have a person that online you can connect with. There's wonderful resources. Email Julie or Pastor Elise and check in with them. But today is the day of salvation. It's not a day for you to wait and think that neutral is a safe place. Put up the graphic, if you would, to close. One of the words that has become common in our language now is stay safe or be safe. It's a wonderful way to close off a conversation. It's a nice well wish to someone. I use it all the time. I find myself talking to anonymous clerks. Merry Christmas and be safe. So I'm not diminishing the difficulties and challenges of a pandemic. But here's my final word to Evergreen Covenant. What if we say, be safe, and add an Aramaic word, Maranatha. Maranatha. It means, come Lord Jesus, or our Lord come. It represented the longing of the first church. The fact that they weren't planning to have families and children and grandkids. They longed for the second return of Jesus. And so they're greeting to one another, 
not knowing if they would even see each other again, was Maranatha. Oh, Lord, come. In Bellingham, I preached from the floor uh, just because I never wanted to give any air that the called leadership of a church is any different. We're only different because of the call of God. But we stand on a level ground before the cross. And so my benediction for you as you enter this new year and you welcome Pastor John. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God the Father. Set your mind on things above and not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, praise the Lord, then also we will appear with him in glory. These are the words of the Apostle Paul from Colossians chapter 3. And would you stand with me? I want us to all give a benediction together. This is what I always shared in Bellingham after our Easter service. I think it's appropriate for today. If we have it, there it is. Let's read this in unison, declare it. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again, Maranatha, one more time, Christ has died, but Christ has risen, and Christ will come again, Maranatha. Make that your greeting with one another, Happy New Year, come Lord Jesus.